The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Very good morning, everybody. This is Scorebox. The headlines this hour. Asian stocks rally extending gains after Beijing announces a surprise cut in some U.S. tariffs with levies on almost 2,000 goods set to be halved on Valentine's Day. More companies say the coronavirus is impacting business. Tesla reverses a six-day rally as the carmaker warns of a delay in deliveries. Yum China warns of first quarter losses and Qualcomm says the outbreak will disrupt the phone industry. Well, we've got rising crude prices this morning amid continued hopes that OPEC and its allies will cut production. But a technical meeting of the major producing nations drags into a fourth day. And the Senate clears President Trump of impeachment charges, but without bipartisan support as former presidential nominee Mitt Romney becomes the first senator in history to vote to remove a leader from his own party. Also coming up on Scorkbox, we speak to the CFO of ING as the bank seeks to navigate the low-rate environment. Plus, we hear from the deputy CEO of SoftGen as the lender forecasts a rise in profit this year after net income falls in the fourth quarter. So let's just focus on this headline news for the markets. China has announced a surprise cut in some tariffs on some U.S. goods. Beijing says levies on 1,717 goods will be cut in half, and that will happen on February the 14th. The finance ministry didn't provide a value on the goods affected. The Chinese yuan has jumped to a two-week high on the back of that announcement and as you can see we've got the uh, quote there on both the offshore and the onshore yuan. Um, Let's just talk a little bit more about what this has meant for Asian equity markets. We've already had an injection of liquidity from the Chinese central bank and clearly we've seen action from the authorities to try and stem the selling on the Chinese stock market. So Matt, as we uh, look at the implications of all these measures, um, what has this done for markets, this news of the uh, reduction in tariffs? Well, we already had a strong performance given that we had the S&P 500 in the US at a record overnight, but this really just lit a fire further under Asian equities in the last hour or so. In particular, I want to show you some of the North Asian markets, which have been fairly trade sensitive. Take a look at the Kospi, now up by two and three quarter percent, and the Japanese market as well, uh, up by about 2.4 percent. We were knocking on the door of a three percent gain on the Tokyo market earlier, but just closing up by about 2.4 percent. Of course, China's Ministry of Finance saying uh, that it will be cutting tariffs on uh, reported 75 billion worth of, of course, U.S. goods, uh, and that is sending uh, markets and some of the other uh, uh, less risk-averse asset classes higher uh, as well. Uh, We're seeing a weakening in uh, the Japanese yen. We're seeing a strengthening in the Australian dollar as well. Take a look at the China markets also doing uh, well too. It says it will reduce tariffs on goods uh, to 5% from 10% on February the 14th, and on some other goods, tariffs will be cut to 2.5% 
from 5%. We are seeing green uh, right across uh, the China market. Shanghai Composite still got about an hour in the trading day there, up by about 1.6%. Hong Kong up by 2.9% there, a gain of 774 points. China saying that it hopes to work towards eliminating all tariffs and hopes that both sides can abide by the trade deal. Of course, that phase one trade deal that was just signed weeks ago and implement it well. You mentioned the currency, but let me give you another look at it. Uh, Just earlier this week, we were, of course, trading uh, 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 weaker at the seven level, but we are seeing a strengthening in dollar yuan, 696.45. We're back now to the strongest level for the currency since the 23rd of January. And you'll remember that date because it was the final date that China market shut before the Lunar New Year holiday. Guys, back to you. Matt, thank you very much indeed for that. Right, I've got a very short time because we have a packed show, so I just want to get through a couple of quick details. Listen to this. Forget everything you know about coronavirus. Forget everything you know about the conditions in the market at the moment. I know that's a big leap, but just do it for me for one second. Week to date, the Dow is up 3.7%. The S&P yesterday closed 1.13% higher. It's new record close, the seventh year to date, okay? New record close for the S&P. The Dow up 3.7% week to date. The Nasdaq at a new record close, it's ninth of the year as well. Technology sector at a new record level, up 8.7% year to date. Technology, I'll just take you back to the other story I just told you to forget about. It's supposed to be quite tightly correlated with production in China and consumption in China. Yeah, yeah, it just had its new record level as well. And consumer discretion, you'd think maybe that was a bit of a worry in the US on the back of this. New record high. Isn't it extraordinary that despite everything going on and all the headlines from CNBC and the other news organisations around the world, we are seeing those kind of levels on these markets. I think that's fascinating. Oh, and by the way, do you remember this time yesterday I said to you about Tesla? Maybe a good company, maybe a bad company, depending on what you think. But the moves on the stock market are bonkers. What happened yesterday? It was down 20%. That doesn't make it a bad company, by the way. Just like when it was up 20%, didn't make it the best company since sliced bread. It means it's a company you should be stunningly careful with if you are day trading at the moment as well. If you think you know what you're doing, you can make a year's money in two days, but you can also lose a year's money in two days. Let's have a look at the oil markets very quickly. Brent up 2.26%. Is it up on the back that we're going to see increased demand? Uh, I don't think so. Some really good piece of copy out there at the moment about how much Chinese demand may well have fallen in the first few days of this year and, of course, over the course of the coronavirus as well. People like Anjali Raval over at the FT and others writing some very interesting stuff at the moment. We could see an absolute plummeting in demand in some of these key countries as well. Uh, let's have a look at WTI up 2.7%. Jeff, you've got some amazing results coming. Yeah, thanks very much indeed. Uh, let's just pick up on the ING numbers then, the net result in a 4.7 billion euros, the fourth quarter number, a net result of 880 million euros. In terms of uh, what they translate to, the underlying pre-tax result then was 9.2% lower than last year. The uh, um, costs also rising here, which will be something of a concern, I think, to a market that is looking very closely at cost-income ratios within the banking sector at the moment. Let's get out to Tanat Putrakal. He joins us from ING. He's the CFO of the business. Good morning to you, sir, and welcome to Squawk Box. Good to have you on board with us. Can I just ask you uh, to characterise the numbers as you see them? How does the bank feel about how you've delivered on the quarter and the full year? Hi, good morning. Very nice to be on your show. I think uh, we probably characterise it uh, as being challenging in a very uh, difficult market environment. 
But I think if you look commercially for ING in Q4, we continue to show positive momentum with additional 200,000 new primary customers being added. I think overall we now have 38 million customers with us worldwide. And what we see is that our customers are becoming significantly more digital than they were the same period last year, with over 37% of our total active customer now interacting with us in a digital mobile way, right? And that has resulted in our top line, particularly net interest income and fee incomes growing year on year. And as you mentioned at the top of your show, indeed, our costs are rising due to some projects related to our anti-money laundering enhancement program, and we have seen somewhat of an uptick in terms of risk costs. The, uh, the regulatory uh, rise in costs is something that I think is, is uh, being experienced across the European banking sector with some frustration, particularly in an environment of low interest rates and challenging economic growth. Tanat, is there anything that you can do to bring these costs down as we run into the first and second quarters of 2020 because it it feels as though the investors are becoming increasingly sensitive to banks and their ability to execute where they can on self-help around costs. Um, That's um, a major component of our cost now, regulatory expenses. I think it represents over a billion euros of expenses for ING Group in 2019. And it's one of the things that we have to do ourselves in terms of managing the size of our balance sheet, where we do business and how we do business. And I think we need to focus, apart from uh, looking at the revenue side on cost efficiency, where we have a number of programs to make sure that at least on the underlying cost basis, we continue to keep costs under control. And if you see for the full year 2019, ING excluding these regulatory expenses has a cost income ratio of 51.5%, which is within our target range. Can I ask you about the net interest margin? Because you have mentioned in the numbers today that's holding up. You've also cited some price discipline and tiering. How much of this is down to just further broader reach on distribution where you can chase much firmer interest rate levels than what you've got here in Europe? Yes, um, the big uh, drag in terms of interest income is really the negative interest rate in some of our major home markets like the Netherlands, Belgium and Germany. But we have also seen good pricing discipline across our franchise, uh, across all asset classes. We have also seen the company change its asset mix where we have now much more, uh, for example, consumer loans compared to certain asset classes. And we have seen uh, diversification away from the Eurozone into Central Europe, Asia and other parts of uh, the, the world where the interest curve remains positive. Tanat, it's been a pleasure catching up with you. Thanks for uh, spending your morning with us, Tanat uh, Putrakal, the CFO of ING. Uh, while we're in the banking uh, space in Europe, we're going to speak with Socgen's Deputy CEO, Philippe Aimers. The French lender forecasts a modest environment for revenue growth. That's still to come. And firmer numbers on the opening calls in Europe this morning on the back of, uh, again, some fresh records on Wall Street for the S&P and for the Nasdaq. We'll be right back after this. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out the Brave Ones podcast. 
The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse. Now, my dear chum, Jeff Cutmore, says I don't like charts. I do like charts. I just don't rely on them historically as much for extrapolating future information as he does as well. But I'm looking at the SockGen chart now, and it's a tale of two numbers. One is the price to book uh, of SockGen, which is a pathetically low 0.46 of 1%. 0.46 price to book. And yet the stock has rallied from its June low of 21 euros to look at that, 30.29. So there's been a complete and utter seven-month re-rating of SockGen. It's is it justified? Well, the Q4 net banking income has come in at 6.21 billion versus 5.93 billion a year ago. Reported net income at 654 million, pretty much in line with expectations. Charlotte sat down with the deputy CEO, Philip Heim. Let's listen in. 2019 was a year of transition, a very active period of transformation for the group. So in a summary, we delivered a pretty good results. So starting by the French retail, in the context that is not so supportive, we can say that uh, we have stabilized uh, our revenues end of this year. Uh, while in the international part of the group, uh, we are running full speed with uh, 2 billion euros of, of uh, uh, revenues. While in CIB, we have a pretty good Q4. Uh, you may have seen that in fixed income, we're up by 41%, in equity up by 9%. So we are reaping the fruit of our transformation and we have a, a pretty good end of the year. So let's drill into your different divisions. Uh, French retail uh, that you just mentioned, revenues up at 2.4, and you mentioned a resilient uh, business there in context of low interest rates. So um, tell us how you saw that fourth quarter and also how confident are you that you carry on with that momentum into 2020? Because some of your competitors see actually the revenues potentially going down next year. How about you? Yes, uh, so indeed, uh, this is not a very easy environment for sure. Uh, so what we see basically, what is crucial is to continue to uh, acquire clients and in that respect, in our key segment of clients, we are making progress. For example, Boursorama has now 2.1 million clients. We are also in, uh, increasing our client base in private banking on the corporate side. We are accelerating on the, uh, the transformation side. For example, we have completed 80% of our plan to close branches out of 500, so it is meaningful. And down the road, what we expect for, for next year, and we'll guide the, the market uh, tomorrow, the slight erosion of revenues between 0 and minus 1% next year. So a pretty resilient, let's say, uh, activity given, uh, let's say, the context, which is not supportive. Uh, if we look at CIB, uh, FIC revenue up 27% on the quarter, and equities as well up uh, 9%. Where did this growth come from? Is it from volume? Is it from gaining market share? It's even better, I would say, because you have the effect, you know, we close some businesses in commodities, for example. So in FIC, we are plus 41%. Equity, as you mentioned, it plus 9%. Uh, it's about better activity uh, in FIC on, on uh, rates and, and credits. Uh, regarding equity, uh, the client demand was also pretty good for our structured products. So uh, all in all, we managed to transform the franchise while, uh, let's say, continue to, to meet our client demands. 
And your outlook for 2020 for, for CIB, how confident are you that you it's can too, around too early to say. It's too early to say, but I think we are confident that we are reaping the fruit of our transformation. So I find this fascinating. And as, as viewers know, that I'm a, a, a stuck record when it comes to the performance and return on equity of European banks compared with US banks. But I wanted to change my record just slightly. And, and Charlotte, these return on equity figures, despite what... Everyone's saying about negative rates and the hard task of improving NIMS in the current negative interest rate environment. 3.7% ROE compared with 4.1% a year ago. I'm going to say it, it looks pathetic. Well, look, we did, I did ask Philippe Heim about this. Their return on tangible equity was 6.2%. And, you know, their target is 9 to 10. So it's quite far from their target there. But they said they will improve in 2020. They're working on a transformation of the bank. They're telling the market, look, bear with us, be patient. It's starting to bear fruit. Um, they're making progress towards improving profitability. They've done about 70% of asset disposal program, and they're, they're getting there as well. Uh, they had a positive jaws effect in Q4, which was negative overall in the year. But Q4 was was positive. So I say, look, let's try to send signal. Another signal they're sending to the market is a CET1 ratio. It was at 12.7%. That was on the back of 125 in the previous quarter. It was a good surprise for investors there. You know, the bank trying to show that they have a healthy balance sheet. And also the cash dividend that they've announced in the previous quarter, here that they've announced again. And they uh, will uh, also put a share buyback uh, element into, into the dividend, about 10% of it. So they try to send a message to the market there saying, they have a healthy balance sheet and they're relatively confident for 2020 they expect revenue to grow slowly all this despite of course the interest rate very low in the eurozone and we talked about dcb monetary policy and whether uh, mr heim was hoping that during the strategic review there would be a freeze in monetary policy from dcb have a listen it's too early to say uh, we would be very happy huh, to see uh, let's say normalization uh, a more gradual normalization of this monetary policy, but uh, the consensus is that it will continue low for long and we need to be prepared and we need to be realistic. Uh, so uh, uh, it's what we, we see. So down the road, uh, even though some specific measures like tiering can mitigate some, uh, uh, some part of some, uh, some elements of this uh, policy. Will you pass on negative rates to customers? Um, we already do for uh, institutional clients. Uh, we have the debate uh, for corporate clients or, uh, let's say, uh, high net worth individuals. Uh, it's too early to say, but at some point, uh, if this policy will continue, we may have to consider, uh, uh, like in other markets, uh, let's say, to, to follow this route. What is true, it will never be done on, on the retail side or for SMEs, but so for specific segments, uh, it's doable. And that was Philippe Heim, the deputy CEO of Société Générale, uh, speaking to me on their results, on the Q4 results. Um, Q4 in line or slightly above expectation there. So Société Générale here trying to send a message to the market and trying to say, you know, we're working on our transformation and, and the, trying to bear fruit, showing that they're bear, uh, reaping the fruit on their, the transformation of their investment banking as many uh, European um, banks are trying to transform and, and face the, the, the rate environment there. Thank you very much indeed for your top-notch reporting. Yeah, look, you know, I was saying compared with Santander, um, who you spoke to, Anna Botin, last week yes, as well. Yeah. And I'm only doing this because I think I want to see what the best-in-class in Europe is. Now, I don't know if Santander's best-in-class, but it's got to be near it. Mm. So, we've just had a return on equity in the fourth quarter of 3.7% from Sockgen, down from 4.1% a year ago. Santander 
had return on equity, 19% in his Latin business, but even in its European business, 11% in Spain, 9% in the UK, 12% Portugal, 13% Poland, and 8% from the US as well. So we're talking about numbers which, on a mean estimate in the home market, pretty much triple what Sockgen got. Santander has had its problems, we know. Yeah, uh, of course. The UK business continues to be a bit of a drag. There are mortgage mm. issues, there's competition issues. The US has come back. That was previously a drag on the business. But quite frankly, they benefit from this diversification and this big position they have in Brazil and Latin America more generally, which, as you say, is the real engine of growth for that business. The, I think the challenge for the French banks at this point is they are so geared primarily to the French economy. What and is as it we about know, Spain cross-border banking UK, hasn't really taken off. Spain and the UK, mm. I'm just taking the mean figure here, 10% return on equity for Santander. Again, triple what that SOCGEN figure is. Mm. Mm. The uh, um, interesting story, Christine Lagarde is going to speak later on and we're going to hopefully take a clip of that in the last hour of programming and listen in to what she says. But she made a very long speech yesterday where she again talked about the fundamental problems in the Eurozone around uh, capital markets and capital markets union as far as she's concerned and banking union and her view being that a lot of that is holding back the ability of Europe's banks not only to merge but also to be more efficient. The Sokgen ROE is very much an underperformance versus other numbers in Europe. And it's funny how we're talking about a 9% level being quite good. The good old days, 15 plus, right, used to be the standard bearer level for the industry. So in context, all of these numbers are pretty weak. Uh, Unicredit numbers are just crossing as well, 9.2% ROTE, just throw that one into the mix, uh, much closer to the other ranges, the high end of the ranges we're talking about in Europe. But, you know, one of the points you've made in recent years, Steve, about putting extra you know, liquidity out into the market and lowering interest rates into firms in negative territory doesn't stimulate demand. If you look at the loan numbers across in this business, which is uh, very much an Italian bank as well, it's not stimulating demand. You're seeing loans actually fall. So demand for loans yet again reversing, uh, particularly uh, across by volumes, average group loan volume, X non-core was down 3.5 billion quarter on quarter, customer rates down two basis points. So some weakness here again in the growth rate customer loan rates for the fourth quarter 2.41% for Italy to just over 2% for Germany 1.46 for Austria where you are seeing a little bit more appetite was CEE at a slightly higher that, end but the point is it doesn't stimulate the desire to put more supply into the market because you think to yourself I've already lent as much money as I can to the people I think are credit worthy. We all know how much if you're credit worthy your company or your uh, an individual you get the bank just goes on it all the time, borrow money, borrow money, borrow money. They want to lend money to you because of your decent credit worthy uh, rating. But if you haven't got a decent credit rating, they still don't want to touch you, whether it's 1% interest rates or negative 1% in uh, interest rates. Uh, the other issue is, I mean, getting away from the net interest income for a moment, because we know that that's largely guided by where the official rates are set. You have an ability through fee income to try and drive growth. But again, just looking at your Unicredit, Karen, flat fee income, quarter on quarter, which means really they're not able to get away from these um, legacy challenges. And the NPL ratio here is still 5%. 
I mean, it's come down, but 5% is still not good enough, really. Right. And they're so busy trying to focus on that capital side, the CET1 ratio, building up some of those reserves to try and meet regulated demands. You've got to say, is it killing some of the growth of strength elsewhere in the business? The other point is, if you look at the commentary around the Unicredit today, they're you know, flagging up uh, that they've beat guidance uh, revenues for, for year 2019, $18.8 above the $18.7 billion guidance. Right. So it gives you a sense that perhaps there's still very fragile confidence out there among yeah. investors. I missing you. on some of these numbers. I hear you, but I say to uh, the, my banker friends out there, boo-hoo, you've got leverage ratios at 4%. It still means you can multiply that money a vast amount of times with the money multiplier. I think you can still make a buck out from leveraging up that original amount of money despite your CT1. So I, I kind of have a limited amount of sympathy for them on that one. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.